Welcome to Central Assembly's podcast. Here is a message from our lead pastor, Kurt Jenkins. We pray this message speaks to you. Say it. There's power in the blood of Jesus. Yes. Jesus, the name above every other name, right? The name above every other name. We've been talking about him for the last few weeks, focusing on that name of Jesus, how we can use that name in prayer uh, and speaking to God, asking God for things in prayer as if Jesus himself were speaking in our place. We've also talked about last week how we have the authority to go into the kingdoms of this world. And when we identify the works of the enemy, we have the authority as ambassadors of Christ to use the name of Jesus to command those situations to change. And today I want to talk about the power of the blood of Jesus. I want to thank Mel Gleason. I know he doesn't want attention, but I want to thank him for building us a door frame. Adam was here, I think, at 11 o'clock last night, staining it. So I appreciate you guys. So if you were here a few years ago on Good Friday, I used this same illustration as when we were taught, when I was uh, studying back up on the blood of Jesus and the power uh, that his blood has, I wanted to use this same illustration. So if you're newer to Central, it'll be a first few. I just believe it's a powerful visual of that. You know, without his blood, his name would not be the name above every other name. Without his blood, we wouldn't have authority to come in his name. Without his blood, we would have no forgiveness of sins, no freedom from slavery. We would have no victory over guilt and condemnation. We would have no protection of the Lord and we would have no covenant with God. All of those things are found because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So the more we understand about this, the more we understand about what his blood actually accomplished, the more we apply it to our lives and those lives that are close to us, we are going to see more results in our lives. And I believe that with all of my heart. At the end of the service today, we're gonna to have an opportunity for you to come forward for prayer. We're gonna pray in the name of Jesus using the authority that each one of us have because we have the Holy Spirit within us. So I want you to prepare your hearts if you wanna come forward for prayer and just to use some of these new revelations that the Lord might give you today about the power in the blood of Jesus. So I have to ask myself a question. Hopefully you've asked it before too. Why was blood necessary? Why are we talking about this? I'm saying the word blood over and over again. It might actually be grossing some of you out. But why was it actually necessary? In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, this is in the Old Testament, it says, for the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So what's happening is, is he's just teaching them without blood, there's no life. So what he did is he put, uh, he, he put into place here an exchange of one life for another. So throughout the Old Testament, what would happen? They would put animals on the altar. They would sacrifice those animals. As the blood was shed, the animal would be giving up its life in exchange so that we might continue to have life. Does this make sense? The atonement means to cleanse oneself, to cleanse from sin. So all throughout the Old Testament, there was a sacrifice that was bloodshed out of animals. And of course, we know that's different in the New Testament. There's a New Testament verse in Hebrews 9.22 that also says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And again, you might be thinking, well, why did he do that? You just have to remember, life is in the blood. 
So if we are found guilty of something, we're either going to be punished for it or something or someone else can come as a substitution for us. In the Old Testament, it was animals. In the New Testament, it was Jesus. Can you say amen? Amen. So what I wanna do is actually uh, is go all the way back to the Garden of Eden before the law was in place and even before Jesus uh, came to earth as human. What we see here is Adam and Eve, they sinned. When they sinned, they realized something. They didn't realize how bad they messed up. What was the first thing that they realized? Think about it. They realized they were naked. So they were walking around the garden uh, naked. All the middle schoolers are starting to get all jiggly right now. <laughs> and what did they do? They got fig leaves and they sewed them together to cover themselves. Why? Because they were walking in shame because of what they just did. Okay, it wasn't their nakedness that was bad. In fact, in all purity, they could have continued to do that. But because they sinned, now there's impurity in their life. Now they realize, okay, now we are uncovered. So they sewed fig leaves, they covered themselves. But the Lord showed, the Lord did something in Genesis 3, 21. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and, Eve, uh, for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. So think about this. He knew that the leaves were gonna break down pretty quick. He knew that they weren't going to last, so he made a more permanent covering for them. And where did he get the skin from? An animal. What had to happen to the animal before he could make the skin out of that animal? It had to die. So there was blood shed. The first time in Scripture that I at least see that blood is shed for the covering of shame, for the covering of guilt, for the covering of condemnation, a more permanent covering that would be a picture of what Jesus' blood would one day accomplish. This isn't just about forgiveness of sin, though. This is about relationship. The whole reason why Jesus went to the cross is because of something called a covenant that God wanted to come into with us. He actually did. He came into covenant with Christ, and now we come in Christ. Now we're in relationship with him. So this is why we're here. This isn't a little game. We're not God's puppets, and we're not, it's not just about the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is here so we can come back into right relationship with God called a covenant. Okay, now Tom and uh, Tom McKee and Mike, I didn't ask you guys, but I'm just gonna have you come forward. I won't embarrass you. Just walk forward. I'm gonna use you for an illustration as like, they're not ready for this, but that's okay. All right. I just wanna show you an example. So if you, if you haven't uh, ever learned about a covenant, you'll know a little bit more. So Mike, you can stand over here. Tom, you can stand over here. So in ancient times, there would be nations, kings that would come into covenant with one another. A covenant was a relationship that when two separate nations, they would be defending themselves against enemies. But when they would come into covenant, what would happen is they would defend the other country as if it was his own. Okay? So God, this is just all picture of what God wants to do in our lives between God and Jesus, and then when we come into Jesus, we're now in this unbreakable relationship with him. So we have two nations, they would agree to come into this treaty or into this relationship called a covenant. What would happen, they would take a notebook just like this, just joking, and they would make two copies of the agreement or the treaty called a covenant. So the reason why they'd have two copies is so they would always be reminded of what was happening. They would actually put this covenant in a box called an ark. This is like ancient nations would do this. Now, when you start to retract your mind between uh, God and Israel and with Moses, what did they do? They put the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant. God didn't need a copy. He's really smart. He'll remember his, all of his rules. <laughs> but two nations, they would come and they would have their two 
their two sets of all the rules and all the regulations of their covenant so they would not break those things. And what that, so that was the first uh, set that would happen in this uh, ceremony. The second thing that would happen is blood always had to be shed during the covenant. Of, it's called the cutting of the covenant, if you've ever heard that. So I have a lamb here. What would happen is, it's a lamb, just a picture. I didn't want to get any more gross than that. So you guys would come and you would actually, you can come here. I'll start it. You guys can each just help tear this down. What they would do, Bill, I'm going to have you help me now, just real quick. You can stand here. What they would do is they would sacrifice this lamb and they would spread the lamb just far enough that you two are going to come together, lock arms. I don't know if the locking arms thing happened, but what I do know, what I do know is the two that were making the covenant would walk through the blood. And what they were saying is this, may this happen to me if I break this covenant with this nation. Why don't you give these guys a round of applause so you can keep your covenants. So the covenant ceremony was extremely important in the covenant being all, everything being written down and then the blood was required for the cutting of the covenant. So now we look at the covenants of the Old Testament. God with Noah, God with Abraham, God with Moses, God with David, and then in the New Testament, God with Jesus. God with Noah, people and animals both shed their blood during the, during the flood. People, everybody died except for Noah and his family. The sign was the rainbow, but there had to be death for this covenant to come into full effect between God and Noah. With Abraham, it was shed blood through circumcision. It was the cutting of the foreskin, which was a sign that they belonged to God. The covenant with Moses had started all the way back with the blood of the lamb in the Passover. And then it came into full effect with the blood of calves when God gave the law and they came down. And then it continued in the temple in the sacrifice of animals throughout the Old Testament. Now this covenant between God and Moses, this is the relationship with God and Moses and all the people of Israel. That's what's referred to as the old covenant or the first covenant. So if you ever hear those phrases, first covenant or old covenant in the New Testament, uh, that's what they're referring to is this relationship between God, Moses and all of Israel. God also came in the covenant with David, who was going to, we know his lineage was going to be an eternal kingdom and the eternal king. There was no stipulations on this. There was no requirement. There wasn't a law that was given. There was a promise. He didn't have to do anything. There was a promise that in his lineage, the king would come. And then we know that that covenant was ultimately cut by Jesus himself on the cross many years later. That's when we hear the word new covenant. That was, just like Mike and Tom were here, that's between the father and the son. So the son was the mediator of this covenant. See, we, when we think it's between God and us, like just directly with us, then we're going to realize we're going to fail God. We're going to eventually mess up and fail him. And when we fail him, then we would come out of that relationship. But it's not between us and God directly. It's between the father and the son. The son shed the blood. Now they have the covenant together. And then we're, it's, the scripture says we're hidden in Christ. So when we come in Christ, when he becomes our Lord and Savior, now we are in that relationship. That's why when we mess up, God's not kicking us out of the kingdom, right? We confess, we repent, we stay healthy in our relationship with the Lord because the relationship is between the Father and the Son and we're in the Son. That's a lot of theology in a little bit of time. You guys all right? Hebrews 9, 15 says this, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, right? That's a home with him forever. 
says, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. That first covenant was the law of Moses. We could not follow all of those laws. We will fail miserably if we were just trying to use that as a standard of our holiness. That's why Jesus had to be the mediator of a brand new covenant. He died in exchange for us to be able to live forever. That's the covenant we're in. In verse 18, no, actually, I want to go back to verse 16. It says, in the case of a will, so we understand what a will is. It's the plans after somebody passes away, what happens with their things. It says, in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it uh, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is still living. So there's an eternal promise that God gave each one of us that we would be in right relationship with him all the way through to our last breath on earth. And when we take our first breath outside of this earth in the spirit realm, we'll be with him forevermore. That will could not come into effect until the one who was replacing our punishment died. His blood had to be shed and then the will, the covenant was cut. His body was split apart and now we can live because of it. Amen? It says this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. It says when Moses had proclaimed every command of the law, uh, to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop. And he sprinkled the scroll and all the people. Think about a ceremony like that. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. This was the first covenant. Now we're going to look, uh, or, or sh shortly we'll look at the new covenant. So if we look at from the, the cutting of the covenant from Jesus back to when this ceremony happened, even backtrack to the Exodus, okay? If you've been in church, if you've raised in church, you've probably heard, of the Israelites being in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. If you follow the book of Exodus out, in Exodus chapter three, Moses encounters a burning bush where God begins to speak to him about delivering the Israelites. In Exodus six, there's the promise of deliverance. In Exodus seven, the plagues begin all the way through Exodus chapter 11. These plagues continue and continue until Pharaoh says, get out of here. Now, the leading up to the day of deliverance where the actual exodus happened is Exodus chapter 12, verse three. I'm reading out of the New International Version. I'll be in Exodus 12 for the majority of the rest of the message if you wanna turn there in your own Bible and take notes and underline things. This is the Lord giving instructions. He says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. How many of you know Jesus is the lamb of God? One for each household. I love what this is saying. This is not a lamb per person. This is a lamb for a household. Christianity is a corporate gathering of a family of believers. It's not ever meant to be something just individual. Yes, the relationship is between you and Jesus, but it's meant to be corporate. That's why even in Acts 16, 31, it says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. This is how we should be living even as parents, is that we know, we declare, we pray that our entire household will be following Jesus together. If your husband's not, your wife's not, or your kids aren't, use Acts 16, 31 as a promise. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved, you and your household. That one day, an entire family would be able to, to worship Jesus together. So in verse four, it says, if, anyone, if any of the household is too small, then they could share with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people who are there. 
Uh, it says, uh, you are to determine the amount of the lamb needed in accordance with each person. So there's all these rules setting up for this lamb that's about to be sacrificed. It says, the animals you choose must be a year old male without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goat. So this is the Old Testament picture of a New Testament reality. In 1 Peter 1.18, it says, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from you from your forefathers, but what? But with the precious blood of Christ, who is what? A lamb without blemish or defect. If you just read the New Testament, you're saying, why are they comparing Jesus to a lamb without blemish or defect? If you go all the way back to the Exodus, to the Passover, the very first Passover, we will now start to see the picture that there was a lamb without blemish or defect that was required to be shed, that their, their blood was shed for the deliverance of Egypt. So as they prepared for this Passover night, I guarantee they weren't thinking about this. They weren't thinking one day a person would actually stand in the place of this animal. But in verse six, in Exodus 12, it says, take care of them until the 14th day of the month. You might not realize this, but this was the night. This was the night that Jesus was crucified. There's no accidents in his word. When all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight, these are the lambs, the spotless lamb without blemish. It says, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. So what happens here is on this specific day, they were to take some of this blood and they were to put it on the top of the door frame. They were to put it on the side of the door frame. What I believe that this signifies is when they put this blood on the top, they're saying, God, we are under your protection. And we put it on the sides, we're saying, God, I'm, I am surrounded by you. You are on my left, my right, you are my rear guard, as scripture says. And this here was to signify something very, very powerful. They're saying, I didn't do anything to deserve this. I'm set, this lamb has a substitutionary effect where the lamb's blood is being shed. And now that it's being smeared on the doorposts and on the top of the door frame, what would happen is, is they would go inside and they were not to come out until after the death angel passed over. Some of your translations call him the destroyer that would actually take the lives of the individuals who were not under this blood. So if you think about this, this allowed, this blood that was smeared on this doorframe allowed for protection from judgment. The judgment of the Lord was going to come down extremely strong in this moment in time. And they were to stay in the house being protected from the judgment. What happened with the lamb? What did it say here? It says that they would eat the lamb in the house. So Jesus, in the New Testament, in John chapter six, in verse 53, it says, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. He's not talking about cannibalism. He's talking about internalizing, digesting the words of Jesus until it is so real to you that you are in personal relationship and that you know that that blood is covering your life and that blood has redeemed you and set you free from the grip of the enemy. 
He goes on to say, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. This entire illustration, what these people went through the day right before Passover, the eve before the Passover, this is a picture of what Jesus is talking about in the New Testament. This next morning is when the Exodus happened, when they took all of the expensive materials from all of the Egyptians and they were to leave completely safe, where it actually says that none of them were sick or feeble. They walked out in, in the strength of the Lord. Back in Exodus chapter 12, verse 23, it says, when the Lord does this uh, through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top of the sides of the door frames and will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. That's where the word Passover, if we hear about the Jewish festival of Passover, that's where we get it. It's a Greek, I'm sorry, it's a Hebrew and an Egyptian word that's put together that means to stretch, to extend, or to provide protection. So all the way back in the Old Testament, the blood of the lamb provided protection from judgment and from the wrath of God. And that is a picture of what the blood of the lamb named Jesus provides us. Protection from judgment, protection from the accuser, and protection from the wrath of God. In Romans chapter five, verse nine, it says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him, through Christ? See, there will be a day when God's wrath will be poured out on all of those who have rebelled against God, who have said no against God, but not us because we have the Holy Spirit in us as a down payment or a deposit, because the blood covers us, we will be protected from judgment. Are you with me? I felt it got really tense in here whenever I started spreading that. It's real. This all ties in. This all ties into the moment on the cross. In Matthew chapter 27, it says, they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is the king, or Jesus, the king of the Jews. So what happened already by the time that Jesus would have come on the cross, his back would have already have had the wounds on it from being beaten. He already had the thorn, the, the crown of thorns being uh, put onto his head. And now the nails were in his hands. Most likely his wrists not in his hands and the nails were in his feet. And the blood was already being shed before he came on the cross but the blood would continue to be shed until the very last moment where he gave his life up. I want you to recognize something. They didn't kill him. They didn't determine when he died. He said it is finished and he gave up his spirit. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the lamb of God. He is the one who shed his blood for the forgiveness of all sins. There's power in that blood. It started with the Passover into the Exodus, and it's finished here. There's nothing else God or Jesus needs to do for you to be redeemed from the sin, for you to be set free from addiction, 
for you to walk in depression the rest of your life. There's nothing else he needs to do. This blood has covered it all so you can be free from all of that junk. Sometimes you might say, well, why isn't it happening? Maybe you have not put your faith yet in this aspect of the blood. Maybe you're just, you know, you're saying, well, I'm going through a rough time and this is just my lot in life. No, maybe over these last few weeks, you realize, Jesus, you are the name above every other name. Everything is actually under your feet. And I actually do have authority to go to the Father in Jesus' name. And now I'm starting to realize what, this, what the effect of this blood actually has. So I'm gonna go to Jesus, or to the Father in more faith, believing that because of the power of the blood of Jesus, I will be set free. It's revelation that comes in your heart that increases your faith that when you go back to the Father, believing that there'll be more results than the last time you went to the Father. So I'm gonna read. This is not an exhaustive list at all, but I wanna go through some of the things that is included in the power of Jesus' blood. Number one, it allows for the forgiveness of sins. The book of Matthew says, this is my blood of the, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So there's power in Jesus's blood for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Some of you have to get over yourselves. You can't sin so bad that God just is gonna forgive all of them but that one. In fact, like even right now, don't even pay attention to the rest of the message. If you have something on your mind that has nagged you for years, one sin, one mistake, one idiotic, what did you say, less than smart decision, Adam? I would say, if you were being an idiot in that moment, <laughs> write that thing down. Close yourself off with God right now and say, I believe that this blood is powerful enough, not just for the other thousands of sins that I've committed, but for this one right here. If you need to after service, bring that piece of paper up and just leave it in this vat of blood. His blood is powerful enough to forgive every single one of your sins. Number two, it gives life to those who consume it. We've already read these verses in John chapter six where it says, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So it gives us life, eternal life and life right now. Number three, it causes us to dwell in Christ and he in us. In that same chapter, in chapter six of John, it says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. And I really feel like, and maybe you want to come forward for prayer at the end of service, I really feel like the Lord, uh, at least in my life, has really been hitting on the aspect of protection. So this, is, this was all about protection. This was all, once you spread this blood and you came inside, you were protected from the destroyer, okay? So now what he's saying is, is if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, I remain, you remain in me and I in you. So if we actually believe that we are remaining in Christ, then we shouldn't be afraid of the accuser or the destroyer. Does this make sense? Like there has to be a boldness that rides up, rises up and says, no more. No more. I'm actually, I believe I'm under the blood of Christ. The blood's over me, around me. You know why I don't think they put it on the actual threshold? Because they would never say I'm stepping over. I'm in authority over the Father. It's above you and it's around you. It's always over you. We have to believe that. One of, the, one of the most powerful chapters, I believe, it's not referring to the blood of Jesus, but it is about protection, is Psalm 91. If you've never read it, pray that thing. I've been praying over my family, my kids recently. It's protection against the enemy. So you might say, well, how do you know that this applies to me? Because of the blood. 
That's how you pull something like Psalm 91 into your life because of something else that's revealed in Scripture. Fourth uh, reason for the, for the power of Jesus' blood. It says, it is, by the mean, it is the means by which Jesus purchased the church. That's the price he paid, his life. In Acts 20, it says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Fifth reason, it is how Jesus becomes our atonement through faith. In Romans 3, it says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Can you imagine that? The father presenting the son as a sacrifice. And it says, through faith in his blood. There's other verses that we read in the past few weeks that says that we're saved through our faith in his name. And he becomes the atonement for our sin because we have faith in what that blood actually did. If we don't believe that that blood has power, then we might say, well, yeah, Jesus might be our our, our forgiver, but there's true atonement, complete atonement in your heart. No more shame, no more guilt, no more condemnation when you believe the power in his blood. Number six, it justifies us and saves us from wrath. I've already read it in Romans chapter five, so we'll move on. The blood of Jesus redeems us. Ephesians 1 says, in him, we have redemption through his blood. What is redeeming? It's a purchasing. It's a buying back, right? So he created Adam and Eve. They fell. They realized they were naked. God sacrificed that first animal, covered them all the way to Jesus's time. The blood is shed and he's saying, finally, I'm buying back. I'm purchasing back my people. They're mine forevermore. Number eight, The blood of Jesus brings those who were far away from God near to him. In Ephesians 2, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. Number nine, it has obtained eternal redemption for us. These are in your bulletin, by the way. It says, he did not enter by the means of blood of goats or calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Number 10, it cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 9 says this, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself as unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death. I want you to picture that, that there's a washing of your conscience. There's a washing of your, the way that you think, that you're not thinking like your old man thought. You may, be, you may have been a Christian for years and years and you're still caught in addiction. You're still caught in some type of sin pattern. You have to look, look back at this verse. His blood has washed and cleansed your conscience from thoughts that lead to the old way of living. So if you're living as you did in the old way of life, then maybe you just did not appropriate or apply the blood of Jesus to that one thought. Say, God, I believe today that by the blood of Jesus, my conscience is being cleansed, washed clean of that thought. Teach me, Lord, new patterns of ways to think. Number 11, it is how we enter the most holy place with boldness. Isn't that awesome? Like, so the blood was shed on this doorpost and they hid under here until the destroyer passed by. But now this blood opens up the way for us to enter into the throne room of God with boldness. It says that we have confidence to enter the most high place because of the blood of Jesus. The veil has been torn, folks. It's wide open. We have access because of his blood. 
Number 12, it makes us holy. Now I understand we are in a constant process of sanctification and become like living holy lives. But there's an instantaneous moment when you receive Jesus that you become holy before God. It says in Hebrews 13, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. So maybe before you continue to try to try really hard to be holy, maybe first spend enough time with the Lord to realize he's made you holy. And out of that revelation, you now have freedom and the ability and the enablement and the grace to live a holy life. Number 13, just two more. Uh, Adam, you can come up at this time. It says, it is the means by which Jesus washes us clean. And in Revelation 7, it says, these are they who come out of the great tribulation. It says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, you art teachers out there, you probably are a little bit miffed by this because their robes are made white by the blood. Think about this. White is representing purity, cleanliness, and holiness. And it's only by the blood of Jesus. The 14th one, there are many, many more. It says, it is how we overcome the accuser. The devil is the accuser. The fancy term for that is the accuser of the brethren. He's constantly in the courtroom of heaven trying to accuse us of all of our sins and all of our failures. But it says in Revelation 12, they overcame him, him, the accuser, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So it's amazing when we think about this as we could be standing in this courtroom of heaven and the enemies next to us accusing us, accusing us, accusing us. And the father, as the judge is sitting there saying, I see nothing wrong with it. I don't see what you're saying. I don't, I don't remember any of that. That never happened. That never happened. That never happened. No charges against this one. It's because of the blood of Jesus. So you may have heard a phrase. If you grew up in the church, it's a, a generation old phrase, but it's called pleading the blood of Jesus. How many remember that phrase? Pleading the blood. Just like the word Trinity, the phrase pleading the blood of Jesus isn't found in scripture as the actual phrase, but it's absolutely a scriptural approach. You could say, I'm pleading the blood of Jesus over my life. I'm covering my children in the blood of Jesus. It's a phrase saying you're appropriating, you're applying, you're receiving by faith the positive effects of the blood of Jesus over my situation, over my family, over my children, whatever it is. I want you to go to the Lord in prayer with this in mind. Whether you use the terminology or not, when you realize the power of the blood, it'll change the way you approach life. Jack Hayford, I want to read you uh, a few paragraphs and then we'll close. He's a well-known minister in the Pentecostal Christianity uh, river, if you will. But he says, pleading the blood of Jesus is a heaven-given resource that grants us license to stand in dominion over the works of hell. We can use it in the same sense as an attorney stands before the court and makes a plea on legal grounds based on a body of evidence. When you and I come before the court of heaven and in every circumstance we face in life, we have the legal right through the blood of Jesus to enter into a plea and possess the evidence which is his slain body and his shed blood. 
which is proven to neutralize the power of sin, the power of sickness, the power of death, and the power of hell. There is no circumstance in life to which the blood of Jesus isn't key to God's releasing, protecting, resolving power, whether it's removing the potential of confusion, which we talked about several weeks ago, overcoming the impact of rebellion, breaking the torment of fear, or the shame of the past. We, when we plead the blood, we are to do so with the fire power of heaven and on the basis of the evidence that through the blood of Jesus, all hell has been broken in its power. All sin has been neutralized. The power of death overwhelmed and every human need paid for once and for all. Let's stand. I want you just to bow your heads before we just call people forward for the altar. We have plenty of time here. I just want you to bow your heads, close yourself off with the Lord. If you are in this room today and you have never received Jesus as your Savior, as the one, the Lamb who actually shed his blood for you, you would know if that's you today. If you've never come to Jesus and said, listen, Jesus, I need you as my Savior and I believe that you shed your blood for the forgiveness of all of my sins. If that's you today, or if you have given your life to Christ earlier in life and you just feel like you've been in rebellion, you need to come back into that household of faith, back under that covering of the blood. If either of that applies to you today, I want you to look up at me with confidence, raise your hand with boldness, and I'm gonna take an opportunity to celebrate with you and pray with you today. Anyone across this room, I see your hand. Thank you so much. I see you two over here. I see you. Come on, Jesus. I see you over here, buddy. Yeah, you can put your hand down. Anyone else? Anyone else? First time or you've just been far and it's time to come back. This is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna say a prayer. It's not a magical prayer. I want your heart to connect with these words and we're gonna celebrate with you and then we'll have people come down to the altar for prayer. If you already know Jesus, just repeat this to help those who raised their hand today confess Jesus as their Lord. Repeat after me. God, today I confess that I've sinned against you and that I need a Savior. I believe Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins and that he was raised from the dead so that I could have new life. I choose to die to my sinful ways and follow Jesus as he transforms me into God's image that I was created for. I now surrender my life to Jesus, making him my Lord, and I receive him as my Savior. I believe I am now a child of God a new creation, born again spiritually into the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's celebrate with them today. We thank you, Lord. I thank you, God, for hearts that are changed. I thank you for repentance. We celebrate with heaven today. In Jesus' mighty name. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to check us out on the web at centralconnect.org.